I want to introduce uh, I want to introduce a special guest with you. How many of you know that to, this weekend is Veterans Day? Uh, I think it's actually tomorrow, but Veterans Day tomorrow we have a special guest with us. I'm going to introduce him with a video, okay? And then I'm going to then I'm going to invite him to come up here and let him share a little bit with you. I think you're going to be encouraged this morning. And so watch this video. You will be encouraged by this. Fans throughout the 2019 season, the Dodgers and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers and the National Electrical Contractors Association of L.A. County are thanking and paying tribute to the men and women of our nation's armed forces by honoring a military hero of the game. And tonight, we're extremely proud to have with us retired Army Staff Sergeant John Thomas Moran. Staff Sergeant Moran joined the Army in 1943. He was in the 3rd Army, 87th Infantry, 347th Division, K Company, and was deployed to World War II in Europe. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge, the Saar Valley, the Siegfried Line, and the Rhine River, where he was the squad leader of his company. He also helped to liberate the Buchenwald concentration camp. His awards include the Purple Heart, the Bronze Star, Good Conduct Medal, European Theater of Operations Medal, American Theater of Operations Medal, Army of Occupation Medal, Victory Medal, and the Certificate of Merit. Staff Sergeant Moran, the Dodgers thank you for your service, sacrifice, and dedication to our country. And we hope you have a great time at the ballpark tonight. off the bottom of the second inning for the Dodgers. Third baseman, number 13, Max Muncie. Isn't that awesome? It really is. And did you know that uh, uh, John Thomas Moran actually goes by Jack now, am I right? Is that correct? Uh, his daughter attends our church, and when we saw this, we asked if she would get him to come, and he's with us this morning. And so, Jack, come up here a minute, if you would. I, uh, there you go. Isn't that awesome? He asked me if we were going to take up a collection for him. <laughs> Let me tell you about this guy. He's 94 years old, uh, and he, um, he just got his real estate license renewed. <laughs> so if you have any real estate needs, this is the guy you want to talk to because uh, he's still, do you tithe? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just renewed my driver's license. And he, for five more years. Just renewed his driver's license for five more years. But uh, we have other veterans in the room. I know Chuck LaForce is right here. Chuck served in World War II in the Pacific. Uh, this guy right here. Yeah, isn't that awesome? He's a, he's a year younger than you. 
That's it. Yeah, there you go, Chuck. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and who else? Who else do we have here that served in our military? We have a, an Iraqi freedom guy here. Yeah. They just stay up. There you go. Isn't this awesome? Yeah. And my name's Jim Ryan. If you'd like to, there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I wanted you to hear from this guy for a minute. I had a bunch of questions lined out, and then the questions he just threw them out the door and said what he wanted to say. But you want to hear what he has to say? Again, um, I, I just think it's so cool. You know, the church. We're not a political organization, but we ought to honor the people who serve our country. Amen. And this is, this is why we're doing that here tonight. And so I want you to take a few minutes and share. I, I told him to take 10 minutes in the first service, and he took 30. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't take quite that long. But you're going to be blessed by hearing a little bit of his story this morning. And then, um, man, just it's a powerful thing. Uh, it just, uh, it, so I'm going to get out of your way and just let you share for a minute. Yeah, that's it. Let me turn, make sure this is on. There you are. Make sure, hold okay. it up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in that video, talking to Justin Turner, I wasn't telling him how to play third base any better than the guy. <laughs> but I did tell him, I said, Justin, my wife loves you, and she does. I said, will you come home with me, with me after the game and <laughs> have dinner with us? <laughs> but, and then I tickled his beard, and that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm going to quickly tell you just about my first week in, in the war. Uh, got up out of our foxholes one morning, got the orders to, to advance, just go in that direction. That's where the Germans are. And stepped, got out of our foxholes, walked about 10 or 15, 20 yards. The first 15 seconds, all hell broke loose. 88 start screaming in, machine guns opened up on us. We had seven men down in the first 15 seconds. And I thought to myself, what, what the hell am I doing here? This, I don't belong here. Get me, get me out of here. This is no place for anybody. But anyway, uh, this was in the Sar Valley in France. And we spent six days there before being pulled out to go up to fight in Belgium in the Battle of the Bulge. And, and in those six days, we lost. We had 96 men killed and 113 wounded in six days. We're, we were losing 30 or 40 men a day. They were just dropping all around you. Uh, God brought me through this for, for some reason or another. I'm not sure what it was, but I'm, I'm, I thank him every day for doing that. Uh, we did, after about five or six days, we, we, we got into a, some buildings. We, we, about 10% of the time in the field, we got into buildings. And we got into a house... It was built on a hill, so the backyard, the back of the house was exposed. The basement wall was exposed. And one of our fellows caught a chicken. And we had a wood stove in this, in this kitchen of this house up on this, sec up on this main floor. And so we, we got the fire going. We cleaned the chicken, put it in a pot, and put it in this wood-burning stove. And... Um, well, we knew that Germans were not too far away, and smoke was coming out the chimney, of course, and some, some Tiger tanks appeared on a mesa about a mile away, and a Tiger tank was deadly up to at least two miles, 
And so this Tiger tank saw this smoke coming out of the chimney. They knew it was Americans in there, so he opened up on us. The first 88 took out the back wall of the basement. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Some, do some of you know what an outhouse is? Okay. This particular farmhouse we were in had an outhouse in-house. It, 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 in, it was in the basement. And the second 88 exploded in the basement and just and ripped out the, the kitchen floor, dropped our oven with our chicken into the basement. So, so, so we lost that. But, 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 but what a mess. Fortunately, there was a stairwell going down this way as the shells were exploding here, and it, it, the sides of the stairwell were, were, were made of st big stones that they pulled out of, the, out of the yards. And so as we're sitting, we all, we all jumped over and sat on these stairs, and as we're, we're sitting there with the shells exploding, the shrapnel and, and the smoke and the noise all over the house, all over the basement, one of the fellows had found a jar of plums down in the basement, and it's a glass jar, uh, and it was, it was red in color. So while we're sitting there, he dropped this, accidentally or intentionally, I don't know, he dropped this jar of, of red plums on top of the steel helmet of the guy sitting below him. So the jar broke, and this guy sitting there has got this red juice flowing down both, both his arms and down his front, and he thinks he's been hit. And, and, and he's, he's furious with, with this guy here. Uh, two, nights, two nights before that, when we first arrived at that house, it was my night to take out the night patrol. And nothing is more dangerous than taking out a night patrol. Uh, you're, on, you're moving, the enemy is not moving, and they're just sitting waiting for you to, to, to make, a, make any noise or, or appear. But I got very sick that afternoon. I just got terribly sick, dysentery. We were, we were in such unsanitary conditions. In, in fact, uh, we went, starting that early that week, we went 28 days straight without taking our clothes off. And can you, can you imagine how dainty we were at that point in time? Every three or four days, you'd open up your, your shirt and pour in some flea powder, open up your pants, throw in some flea powder. That, that was, and, and no toothbrushes, no toothpaste. Uh, you can imagine... Halitosis was, was really something. But anyway, uh, I was supposed to take out that night patrol, but I got so horribly sick that one of the other sergeants, uh, Johnny DeFlavio, he said, Jack, you can't go tonight. I'll take your patrol tonight. You take mine tomorrow night. And I said, Johnny, wonderful. Uh, do that, and, and I hope I feel better. So Johnny and three other fellows, four other fellows left the house about eight o'clock to go out and try. The main thing is to try to capture a, a German or two or, or else just try to find out where they are and how many there are, of them they, there are there. So they left the house about eight o'clock. They came back into the house about nine o'clock. They, they burst into the house carrying Johnny. Johnny. Johnny was all shot up. And so I, there are twists and turns in, in, in being in the right place at the right time in the wrong place at, at the wrong time. And I just thank God that he got me sick that day so I didn't have to go and be where Johnny was. I might have been killed instead of just, just shot up. So we, uh, we stayed there for a couple of days and then the bulge broke through 
and uh, uh, George Patton, our general, was ordered to get us up to Belgium as fast as he could, and he said he he could be up there in two days. Uh, Montgomery, the English general, said, I can be up there in three days, but Bradley couldn't wait for, for Montgomery's, and Patton hated Montgomery anyway with a passion, so we went flying, running, heading up to, to, to uh, Belgium. Uh, I, I saw George Patton one day. I was sitting, we always rode in open bed trucks no matter what the weather. I, I would have thought they could get us some buses with heating, heating or air conditioning, but here we were in these open bed trucks. I was, so I was leaning out the side of the truck one day. In a, in a, the French roads at that time were sloppy. It was in the wintertime, and they're narrow anyway. And so I'm sitting there, and, and George, I look over here. George Patton is sitting about 10 feet away from me in, in a Jeep with, with his pearl handle 45s. And the truck in front of us has got the road blocked a little bit. Now, let me ask you a question. <laughs> yeah, George George Patton had a limited vocabulary. I think I, I think I think you all know that. Anyway, so so I I am sitting here watching George, and George's driver hollered. There's a truck in front of us has them blocked, and George's driver hollered up and says, "What's the matter up there? Let's get going." And the the driver, a voice came out of the cab saying, "I can't move and I'm going to burn out the clutch." And George hollered back. He said, burn that son of a bitch out. <laughs> and, and when the driver... <laughs> and and when, the, when the driver looked back and saw that red flag on the hood of that Jeep with three white stars on it, he knew what it was and he better get out of the way. So he pulled the truck into the ditch and George went tearing down the road. That was... That was uh, an interesting moment. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but anyway, I saw so many young men killed. Like I said, we had 96 killed the first six days. Uh, we were about the third day we were to attack a German position, a thing called Hill 360. And four of our guys, four of my friends, told us that they had a premonition that they were going to die that day, that they would not make it. And all four of them were killed that night trying to get up this hill. Just. Uh, Amazing that they had that premonition. But it's a shame to see all these young men uh, whose lives were being cut short and, and, and the agony of the people back home, the mothers, uh, wife, husbands, fathers all, all being cut down. And, uh, it, war is a horrible thing. And I and hope we never have another world war. Uh, we went up into Belgium, into the Battle of the Bulge, and it froze, froze to death. But again, we still, still hadn't taken our clothes off. Night and day, you slept in what you had on. We didn't have any overcoats. We threw our overcoats away early in the game because they were too heavy, and they absorbed too much moisture, and they were just we just couldn't move very well with them. So we threw those away. So we didn't have a lot of clothes on, but we, we shivered. One night in a foxhole, Another fellow and I, we'd, pull, we'd put uh, boughs or, or foliage over half the whole foxhole, and we'd leave the other open so we could get out. So another fellow and I in a foxhole one night. We were so cold, we both lit a cigarette. And in 
our minds, we figured if we if we smoke hard enough, we can heat, we can raise the temperature here, maybe one, <laughs> maybe one degree or two degrees. So we so we 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 sat we laid there puffing as fast as we could, you know, and 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 the smoke and lighting up the end of the cigarette very well, but I don't think we raised the temperature at all. But but uh, you talk about secondhand smoke. I, I, I mean, we, we had it. That was really something else. Uh, we were cold all the time. We were scared all the time. We were hungry all the time. Uh, the, the food chain, it's it, very difficult to get food up to, it, to the front lines. It, they, they, would, they were back up some miles or so. Anyway, I did a lot of studying about the war after the war and since then. And I realized this eventually that of all the people that set foot on the battlefield, by the battlefield, I mean actually where the action was. I don't mean driving a truck a mile back or being in a, in a supply vehicle, a train 10 miles back. Of the, all the people that actually set foot on the battlefield, three out of four were killed or wounded. It was, you, just, you just couldn't avoid it. it uh, uh, you couldn't stick your head up without an 88 come screaming in or, or, or burp guns or machine guns. And you didn't get hardly any sleep at night because you and your buddy, one of you had to stay awake all the time. So there were 12 hours of darkness. You got six hours, he got six hours. But in that six hours, first of all, when you lay down for two hours, with what you've been through that day, physically, psychologically, you don't just turn off the lights and go to sleep like that. You, you, you're in turmoil. And as you're trying to go to sleep, artillery is going over in both directions. And, and in the distance, maybe half a mile away, you hear machine guns and burp guns going off. So, so when you, the next morning, uh, if you did get any sleep, you still had to drag yourself up without, a, without any warm food at all, maybe, maybe a K-ration, part of a K-ration, and be ready to advance more. It was very, very difficult. Uh, only, only young kids can do it. Uh, uh, over, we had a couple of fellows in our in the 30, late 30s that it was just too tough on them. It, 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 they didn't belong there, but the government, the government put them there. Okay. The, the only thing else I'll cover is crossing the Rhine River. In the middle of the night, 142 of us are going to sneak across the Rhine River. There's a big castle on the hill over here, right across the way. We're little tiny wooden boats, about four feet wide, about eight feet long, about that deep. And, we, and at midnight, we're, we're going to push off. Just before we were to push off, the captain said to me, Moran, I want to, I want to radio in your boat. So he gave me a guy, a radio man carried a radio on his back. He gave me Frank Nagel and said, you give me one of your men. So I gave him my number three man. I was number one. Number three man was right behind me. So I put Frank right behind me. So we pushed off right at, right at midnight. We got halfway across the river. The Germans saw us coming or heard us coming. They lit up the river just like Dodger Stadium for a night game, and they opened up on us with five heavy machine guns. The bullets were going. I could feel bullets hitting my paddle, uh, bullets going through the boat. One bullet went through my pants here. Another bullet just skinned me here and, and hit Frank in the heart and killed Frank. He fell over on top of me. Uh, the engineer standing up in the back of the boat, he was riddled by a burst and fell over into the river. 
the boats were now spinning, 16 boats, they were spinning as, as the, the rowing was not in balance. They were spinning, crashing into each other. I heard guys swearing. I heard guys praying. I heard guys screaming when they got hit. Uh, and I just had to holler at my men to dig those paddles. Let's get out of here and get out of this mess. So we did. We worked real hard, and we pulled out and were able to get to the other side. But... Uh, they must have been pulling bodies. We lost about half our men. That I lost maybe 70 men there out there in the middle of the river. So they were, uh, some of the boats were, were drifting down the river the next day. They must have been picking up boats for some time with, with bodies in them. Anyway, I used up enough of your time. But it was, it's, a, it's a horrible thing to see these young kids laying there bleeding to death. No hope in life. Uh, hopefully, God has mercy on their souls. I believe, I believe in divine intervention. I believe God spared me for some reason. And I hope to, I'm going to sneak into heaven through the back door someday, I hope, and, 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 and get to see God. And I'm going to ask him why he brought me back home. I know one reason was to be the father of that young lady back there, that lovely Susan, and her equally lovely sister. They're two of the finest people on the face of the earth as far as I'm concerned. Thank you for your time. So, Rick, I could talk for another hour. Put your glasses on. Isn't that awesome? Hey, amen. Have a seat real quick. Let, let, me, let me just, I asked him to say something uh, on the phone this week when we talked. I said, would you, would you tell us how you, having gone through what you went through and all of those guys who went through what they went through, what would they say? What would they say to the people who are living in America today? And um, I'm going to let him get this letter. Yeah, this letter was written to my father 110 years ago by a famous Broadway, by a famous Broadway actor, stage actor. At that time, there was no movies. The industry hadn't started. So, but John was very well known. He had a tremendous command of the English language. Wrote a gorgeous letter to my father. The final paragraph is this, and he, this is my father graduating from high school. And John said, breathe right, think noble thoughts, dream beautiful dreams beyond the square, get in tune with the infinite and build a palace for your soul. That, that just, just wonderful words, wonderful piece of advice. My father lived that. He was a, he, my father was a fantastic man, a great, great Christian. Uh, tried to pound, pound into me what was right to do in life, how to treat people, uh, and to keep the faith, believe in God, trust in God, and know that someday we'll be with God. And that's that's what we're living for. The only the only thing we're living for, the only important thing in your life, is the salvation of your immortal soul. And we must keep that in mind, and we must act in such a way as to make that happen. Thank you, buddy. Yeah. Thank you. Let me pray. Thank you. Let me pray for these guys. Father, I pray for our veterans today across this land. Uh, many of them live with the scars and memories of war that I can't even begin to imagine. Father, I pray you'd bless them today, and I pray that the people of God across this nation would pray for these men and women and for those who are serving today are going to be veterans one day. They're servantly 
currently serving. I pray, God, you'd bless them and encourage them. Father, we, uh, we thank you for their sacrifice. We thank you most of all for the sacrifice that you gave us in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that the greatest battle ever fought was fought on a cross where righteousness and justice and love and forgiveness were provided for those of us who received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. God, thank you for Jack Moran. Thank you for his uh, life, not just his time in the war. Thank you that when he came home, he battled all those memories to live his life. Thank you for other men in this church who have done the same thing. And God, I pray you'd bless them. God, remind us today that we have a good father. And while we live in a very tough world, we have a father who loves us. And God, uh, we know that, God, you cause everything to work for good to those who love you and called according to your purpose. Thank you again for your grace. And God, we commit the rest of this morning to you in the name of the Lord Jesus and all God's people said together. Thank you, Jack, again. I don't know about you, but my heart's been blessed today just uh, in the worship, and then my heart's been blessed in um, the music. Um, thank you guys for creating a place for us to worship and to collectively honor the Lord Jesus. Really, that's what worship is. It's uh, where we collectively come in agreement with God's Word, and um, you know, it's just been a blessing to me uh, to, uh, to hear Jack and see so many of our guys that served. I have a brother. My dad served in World War II uh, at the end of World War II. Uh, he was a kind of a part of the cleanup crew. He was, he's younger. He's only 90. And, um, and I have a brother who served in Vietnam. And uh, this afternoon, I'll make my annual call to him. I don't know if I'll be able to talk to my dad, but I'll make my annual call to my brother to thank him. I think I told you before, several years ago, I before I left Texas, I, I got up and I, it was Veterans Day and I thought, you know, I don't think I've ever said thank you to my brother. And you know, Vietnam was not a well thought of war or conflict, whatever they called it. And, but I thought, you know, my brother just went. Uh, he was a surgical assistant in a field hospital in Saigon. And so you can imagine some of the things he saw and experienced. And so I picked up the phone and called him and I say, hey, Bob, Jim, what's going on? And I said, well, it's Veterans Day, and I don't think I've ever done this. I just wanted to tell you that I, I appreciate your willingness to go serve this country. And it got real quiet. He didn't say anything. And suddenly I heard him crying, and I said, Bob, what's the matter? And he said, you are the first person who's ever told me that. And my heart broke, and I made a commitment that from that day forward, when Veterans Day came along, I'd be calling my brother to tell him thank you. So if you know somebody who served, uh, you know what, guys? Pick up the phone. Uh, give them a call. And just say thank you. Uh, you. You don't have to agree or disagree. Most of them probably didn't agree with a lot of things going on, uh, but they went. And um, so pick up the phone this afternoon. Think about people who did that over these next couple of days. I guess tomorrow's actually Veterans Day, but we don't meet tomorrow. So um, anyway, take time to do that. Last week, we began a little series saying, you are home, and I, I really believe that one of the things God wants you to know in this series is that you're not at home because you're in church, you're at home because you're at home with God. You're in a right relationship with God, and I think there are a lot of people who are running to the church today to look for 
acceptance and value and love and things of that nature. And my prayer is that you could always find that here, but you don't need my acceptance first and foremost. You don't need to be valued by me. Uh, you, your, your highest need is not to be loved by any human being. Uh, it's not to experience my forgiveness. Your need is to find that in the only place it really matters, and that's in a relationship with God. And I find that when people are really at home with God, the church is a pretty cool place because we understand that we're all here for the same reason, and that's because God and his grace granted to us something that we never could have earned or deserved in and of ourselves. And so while we walk through this little short series just called You're at Home, I hope you feel home in Harley Canyons. I hope you feel accepted and valued because you're here. I hope the people of this church are warm and friendly and all of those things. But I can tell you today, my greatest desire for every one of you is that you know that you know that you know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can know that. The Bible says, these things have I written unto you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life and this life is in his son. Adrian Rogers used to say, you don't have to think so, you don't have to hope so, you can know so. And it's because you've put your faith in Christ and more importantly, the Holy Spirit has invaded your space called your heart. He's given you the assurance so you can say, I know in whom I have believed and am absolutely convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. And so I hope you can, can feel that sense of acceptance but today we're going to talk about home as being a place where you are highly valued, highly valued. We, we began last week with a, a little passage of scripture out of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me kind of read it again. We're going to read this every week during the series. It'd be good for you to memorize this. One of the reasons I think most people are struggling with their identity in Christ is because they're trying to create expressions on their own instead of memorizing what the scripture says is true about you. Uh, you, you, will, you will do far better if you remember what God says about you than you try to make up stuff, okay? And so if you memorize this passage of scripture, and since it's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, I think you'll find that these words begin to help you see what we're looking at. We looked at last week when we deal with it being accepted, and this week as we talk about the importance of value. Well, let's read it together. He says, look at all. Here's what he says. But you are, present tense, he didn't say you will be, you are, that's right now, if you're in Christ, this is presently true of you. You are a chosen race. Okay, not a born race. You're a chosen race. Okay, you, we were all born in some racial identity across our world. But according to the scripture, I'm not what I was. I'm what God decides I am. I am a chosen race. I am a royal priesthood. <laughs> I know most of us think I ain't no priest. Yes, you are. If you're in Christ, you're a priest. Because basically a priest in the Old Testament was somebody who represented the people before God and represented God before the people. And every one of us, because the Holy Spirit is a part of our life, have the capacity to go before God and we have a capacity to represent God before the people. We have the, we have the ability to pray for people. We have the ability to share the gospel with people. That's what we do as priests. We, we represent the needs of people before God, and we represent God before people. And all of that's made available because of who Jesus Christ is, not because of we, who we are, but because of who Christ is. So you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Wouldn't you guys like to live in a holy nation? Okay. I don't think there's one on the face of the earth, but you are a holy nation. You're already part of a nation that's holy. It's not self-righteousness. It's holiness based on Christ. 
Then he says, you are a people for his own possession. You're a people for his own possession. Now, let me stop here and say this. Who possesses you determines your value more than anything else. Who possesses you determines your value more than anything else. Uh, I use this at the end of the sermon in the first service, but I think I like it better here. That's why you guys get the best sermon because I've already practiced once, okay? Uh, how many of you, I have a closet full of old tennis shoes. How many of you have a closet full of old tennis shoes, okay? Next week, we're going to bring all of our old tennis shoes. I want you to sign them and we're going to have an auction to see how much money we can raise. Anybody want to buy my stinking tennis shoes? No, but if I took a pair of tennis shoes, let's say I got me some, uh, some uh, Air Jordans. Is that still a popular tennis shoe today? It's still a good tennis shoe, okay? But let's say I had a pair of Air Jordans, and I brought them down here and tried to auction them off. You think anybody would really try to pay anything for those tennis shoes? Drew, you would, wouldn't you? Boy, of course you would. We were about the same size. But let's just say that I had a, a signature. I had an autograph on that tennis shoe that was signed by Michael Jordan, and he wore them in the NBA Finals when he took that last shot. Remember that last shot? Get, how many of you remember that last shot? I see how old some of you guys are, okay? Now, do you think if I auctioned those off, we might get a little more money for it? It's the same shoe, guys. The difference is Michael Jordan's tennis shoes are far more value than mine. And the truth is you're a, you're, you're a possession of God. God owns you, which says that God values you. And then he says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. He gives you a positional side of things in these first few words. He tells you who you are. And then he says, in light of who you are, here's what I want you to do. I want you to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Isn't that so cool? You are God's people. Once you did not have mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amazingly powerful material. And in that, we're looking at four basic things. Last week, again, we looked at how you were accepted by God, not based on your own works or your own self-righteousness. You're based on the work of Christ on the cross. What God did on the cross has never happened before that moment and will never happen again because there were four basic needs of the human heart that were satisfied in the cross. The need for righteousness, but it's not ours, it's his. The need for justice, the need for love, and the need for forgiveness. There's never been in history, an event in the history of the world before that time. There will never be in the history of the world again an event like that time where the four basic needs of the human heart are satisfied. Righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ. Justice, because God poured out his wrath on the cross and his, 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 his righteous wrath was satisfied so you and I can have a relationship with him. His love was expressed on the cross because God so loved the world that he gave his love for you. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinning, Christ died for us. And then last of all is we have forgiveness. Forgiveness, complete and absolute forgiveness. It'll make a difference what you've done. God forgives. When you by faith accept his gift of eternal life. 
So, with that in mind, I want you to look back over in Luke 15. We looked at the last of the story in last week's sermon. We looked at the prodigal son, which is really not about the prodigal son. It's about the accepting father. By the way, let me remind you something, okay? Sometimes we read the Bible looking for us, and I don't mean we can't find us in the Bible. What we ought to do is read the Bible looking for Jesus and looking for God. Because your answer, you're never going to be the answer in and of yourself. Now, I identify with a lot of characters in the Bible. But at the end of the day, if I don't read about God in the Bible, because the purpose of the Bible is to get us, allow us to know who God is and what he's done for us and how he, he loves us. But it's important for you, for you to do that. And so when you look at these parables, we, we tend to think about the prodigal son. Well, there was a prodigal son, but thank goodness for the prodigal son that there was a loving father, right? And so we, we, we understand those things. So this morning we're going to look at the second of those stories. We're kind of going backwards is what we're doing. And we're going to look at this whole story of uh, Jesus and his story about a woman who lost a coin. Now, let me back up a little bit. I didn't really do this last week, so I want to do it real quickly. If you look at the setting of this story, what you understand is that Jesus has, is, 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 people are being attracted to him. There are people who are being attracted to Jesus. And the people he's attracting, um, the religious elite are not real happy about it. In fact, here's what he says in, in chapter 15, verse 1. It says, uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Now, that's the kind of group you really want to be around, right? Tax collectors and sinners. Uh, how many of you like IRS agents? Anybody? You like it when they call you? Okay. Now, theirs were even different because when you look at the tax collectors of their day, there were a couple of things. Number one, they were... Uh, they were uh, probably Jews who had sided with the Romans to get jobs with which they could make a lot of money. So they were, uh, they were deserters. And number two, they were thieves because the Romans basically said, this is how much money we have to have. You get as much as you want. And so they would overtax people, give to Rome what they required, and then they would keep the rest for themselves. Thus, you have guys like Matthew, the tax collector, and there was this little guy named Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus was a wee little man? A wee little man was he. You guys remember that one? He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Lord came passing by, he looked up in the tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, or I'm going to your house today. Anybody want to record that? Anybody? Okay. You guys remember Zacchaeus? These were highly despised people, and they were sinners, sinners, people who knew they were sinners. But what a sinner was is sort of a class of people. It was a class of people. It was people who were living outside of the Mosaic law intentionally. In fact, in most cases, they were made up of people that we wouldn't want a lot to do with. When you read through the Bible, you'll find that there are about six instances in the gospel in which the religious leaders used Jesus' relationship to outsiders as an attempt to discredit his influence. In fact, it was used in some ways to legitimize his death. His death. You see, they didn't put Jesus to death because he did miracles. They put Jesus to death because he loved people you and I didn't love. And people were drawn to him. And in the passages of Scripture, we learn 
that he receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, that wouldn't be a big deal to us, but it was to them. Because a Jew knew you did not eat with sinners. First of all, you didn't want to be corrupted by the sin. Second of all, the food may not be kosher. Blessed by the rabbi. And so Jesus finds himself in a place where he is... Um, being confronted by religious leaders for associating with people that truly, truly spiritual people would never associate with. In fact, in Mark uh, 2.17, Jesus had another one of these encounters. Instead of backing down, he, he made a comment, and here's what he said. He said to the religious leaders, he says, look, those who are well have no need of a physician. How many of you ever gone to the doctor just because you were healthy? When do you generally go? When you're not feeling well. I, get a, I, get, I did get a call the other day from my doctor, and it said, we have not seen you in a while. And uh, so I'm, I'm going back to the doctor in two weeks, so I've started walking again and eating right. <laughs> I've taken a three-week vacation from my bad habits. And so you guys pray for me, and then when it's over, I'll find the coin and we'll have a party. Um, but he says, but uh, you, those who have well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but those who are sick. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In today's parable, we read these words. What woman or what woman Having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I've lost. Just so, just so. He says, I tell you, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy before the angels of God for one sinner who repents. In this amazing little text, we learn some things that we need to know. We begin to think about our own sense of value. We need to learn some things about, more importantly, not so much our own sense of value, but how God values us. But here's what I believe. God values you. God cares about you. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I could give you many verses. But what is the one most popular? John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave. God demonstrated his love for you that while you were on, went on sinning, Christ died for you. Now, so there are three things I want us to see. First of all, I want us to know that this, we know God values us because he is the one who looks for us. It is God looking for us is what it's doing. I mean, the, the whole premise of the story is that when you look at the actions and the storyline, basically it's the woman who is taking the action. It's not the old coin that's doing anything. In fact, I, I will tell you this, coins in and of themselves really can't do anything, can they? Anybody got a coin in your pocket? Anybody? This is, we're going to pass an offering plate in a minute, so get your coins out. No, I'm just joking. But, uh, you know, if you have a coin in your pocket, do I have any coins in my pocket? No, I've got a, ooh, I got a $10 bill. Okay. 
Now, is this, is this thing have any real value to it in and of itself? No, I mean, it has the, it has the, the guarantee of the, uh, of, of, of the Bank of America, the United States of America on it. But, you know, the truth is it's a piece of paper with some writing on it. It's a good piece of paper, wonderful piece of paper, but it's of no value just because it's paper. But the truth is it is really worth $10. It's worth $10. Now, some of you say, well, uh, can you decrease the value of a $10 bill? Can you do that? Well, let's say I'm going to wad it up. Say, is it worth $10 now? No, wrinkled like that. It should only probably be worth about nine bucks, right? Right? No, it's still there. Okay. Let's do it this way. I could take it down here now. I could stomp on it. Now, it's only worth $8 now because it's been wrinkled and stepped on, right? No, it's still worth $10. Still is. Let me show you this. You will never see this happen again. I just violated the law. You know what? It's interesting. It's still worth $10. Now, here's why I say that to you this morning. Because some of you think that because you've been wadded up, you've been stepped on, and you've been torn apart, that you're not of any value. Let me tell you how I know you're a value, because in reality, the reason you're here today is because God did everything necessary to bring value to your life. It was God who looked for you. The coin's just a coin. I mean, you throw a coin on the ground, what does it do? It just lays there, okay? It just lays there. But the woman values the coin. She values the coin. really know all the reason it was a value. Some people believe that those 10 coins may have been what we call her dowry, and she wore them maybe as a necklace around her neck. It was, it was maybe what her husband had paid for her, not that they were purchased, but okay. How many of you have a, how many of you have a wedding ring? A how many of you have a wedding ring with a diamond in it, ladies? Okay. Okay. It, 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 you know, <laughs> my, uh, my wife had one, and she lost it one Sunday. And you know what? She has looked for that thing. And I don't know why, because I, I told her it was a prudential ring. You guys know what prudential insurance is? Remember the commercial? You know, prudential was a piece of the rock. Lindsay, Carol, but it was valuable. You know why it's valuable? Because when she wore it, it, it said to people, my husband loves me and cares about me. So when she lost that coin, it mattered to her. It was of something valuable to her. So she did whatever was necessary to look for it. Now, I want you to hear this. What you'll notice in the Bible is that anytime we have a relationship with God, it's not because of what we did. It's because God did it, looked for us. God always initiates our relationship with God. It's not for us initiating a relationship with God. It's God initiating our relationship with him. I mean, read through the whole Bible. Read through the whole Bible. Look at the covenants. And the Old Testament is full of what we call covenants, promises that God made to people. There are four basic covenants of the Old Testament. One of them is called the Noadic covenant. It's the covenant God made with Noah. 
Then you have the Abrahamic covenant. Then you have the Mosaic covenant. Then you have the Davidic covenant. Now, everybody knows those names. If you have any biblical knowledge whatsoever, you know who Noah was and God made a covenant with Noah and you know who Abraham was and you know who Moses was and you know who David was. But here's what I want you to see. Need, not one of these people were looking to be what they became. God in his providence spoke and looked for them. God always initiates a legitimate relationship with human beings. And just like the woman who turned on the light, he did it to look. It's interesting when you read this theologically, a lot of people believe this is one of the first times Jesus is exposing the work of the triune God. The shepherd would be Jesus. The woman with the lost coin who sheds light and sweeps the floor would be the role of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know the good father who welcomes the son home. But see, here's what I got, you, you got to understand. You, you, maybe you're here this morning, you're searching, you're looking. Can I tell you something? Your desire and, 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 and understanding, you're having a desire to have a relationship with God is indicative of the fact that God is doing something in your life to draw you to himself. God is doing that to draw you to himself. This is what he said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7. He said, it was not because you were more, uh, were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Listen to this. But it, because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to the fathers, that the Lord brought you out, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You get that? God's saying, Israel, listen to me. I didn't choose you because you were more numerous, because you weren't. I didn't choose you because you were better, because you weren't. Here's what he says. But the Lord loves you because he has an oath. He made a covenant. And he's keeping that oath that he swore to the fathers. And it was God who brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Here's what I know today. If I've ever been brought out, it wasn't me deciding I wanted to. It was because God did everything necessary to bring me into a right relationship with himself. John 15, 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples and here's what he says. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You know, Peter wasn't walking along thinking, and I, I mean, maybe they were looking for a Messiah, but I'm sure this kind of blindsided Peter because he never dreamed that the Messiah would ever call him out and look for him, but he did. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you, you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever the Father asks in my name, he may give it to you. Number two, we know God values us because he listens to us. God looks for us, he's listening. So first thing she does, she turns on the light. 
She removes things and she's looking for the coin. She hadn't found it yet, so what does she do? She gets a broom. Now, if you know anything about Palestinian homes, if the floors weren't dirt, they were made of cobblestone. You drop a, a coin on cobblestone, what does it do? Makes a noise. So she's going to sweep because the house is dirty. She's sweeping, and as she's sweeping, sweeping, she's looking and she's listening for the coin. She's looking for the coin. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. God hears the cries of your heart. And sometimes it seems like in life we're just being swept away. It causes groanings. That's what Romans says. That we, there are groanings that we have that are too deep to be uttered with words. You ever been in a situation where you don't even know what to say anymore? It's just... And you cry out to God. You know, God has always heard the cries of his people. Not the complaints of his people. The cries of his people. The psalmist said it this way. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined me to me and he heard my Therefore, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. You know, prayer is so important. It really is. Prayer is what initiates us into the fellowship of the kingdom. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved with the heart man. With the heart man believes unto righteousness with the mouth. Confession, that's a crying out. Confession is made unto God. Now, now here's why I want you here. Most of us have this kind of casual mentality of prayer. How many of you get real passionate about prayer when you're praying over your dinner? Okay, it's kind of like rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. <laughs> a friend of mine said that at a Thanksgiving dinner one time. His mom called on him to pray, and he said, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. And his mom backhanded him. <laughs> so God heard the, his mom heard the cry of that boy, Okay. <laughs> Okay, that, but we do that. But there's a difference when things are really passionate, aren't they? James says, here's the kind of prayer God hears. God hears the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. In other words, it's not just sort of this casual, you know, quote the Lord's prayer. It's something deeper. And you've been there. I've been there. I've been there in my own life. I've been there when the doctor told me that my wife had six hours to live if we didn't take Nathan from her womb. And I guarantee you, I didn't go in that day and say, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yea, God. I'm going to tell you something. I was crying out to God with all my heart because I wanted to have my son, but I didn't want to lose my wife. Prayer was a little different. Jack, it's the prayer you pray in a, pray in a foxhole, isn't it? Not the prayer you pray in a, you know, in a, in a, in a lounge. Most of us don't pray in a lounge. It's a fervent prayer. 
You know, Jesus said these words. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he says, if you open the door, there's a crying out. He says, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Let me ask you a question. Have you heard the voice of God in your life and responded? Because listen, it's God who does it all. It's not us. Nobody can entice you into a relationship with God. I could manipulate you, get you to say some unmeaningful words, but you know the difference. When the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, you know that it's God. You know that you know that you know that. And you know it's not you, it's God. The coin is just an object. And the only reason it was a, was a value is because it was a, a possession that meant something to that woman. Look at the last one. We know God loves us because he lifts us. We know God loves us because he lifts us. The Bible says when she found the coin, what did she do? She lifted it up. She lifted it up. You see, God lifts us up by picking us up. In Psalm 40, verse 2, he says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction. You ever been in a pit of destruction? You ever felt like you're in a pit of destruction? Here's what he says. He says, he, he, he lifts me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. James said it this way. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. Your job is simply to come before him humbly. You can't do this, guys. Only God can do this. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James says it this way, or First Peter says it this way in verse 6 and 7. says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Humble your hand before the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then he says, be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, to bring you down. But God lifts you up. And just like the woman who found the coin, she lifted it up. So she, he lifts us up by picking us up and then he lifts us up by celebrating us. He lifts us up by celebrating. I love this passage. It says, when she found out, okay, when she found a coin and, and, and all the things were good, that says she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's kind of a weird deal. Can I tell you something? A coin, more than likely, was a little silver coin. It was called a denarius. It was one day's wage, okay? It sounded like to me the, she party, the party she threw cost more than the coin was worth. Would you agree? I mean, how many of you ever spent one day's wage on a party? This is a bad party, okay? Probably not. Can I tell you something? Here's what's amazing. It wasn't about the inherent value or the inherent of intangible item. It's what that item represented to her. And, and here's what you and I got to understand. The reason we have value is because we become a possession of God. 
And when I know God possesses me, I know I'm valued. In fact, uh, there, there's a passage of scripture. I, I, love, I love this passage of scripture. And it, it basically is, is, is a passage where the Pharisees had, come, Pharisees had come to Jesus to try to trap him. They were, they were trying to get rid of Jesus, but they didn't really have the authority to do it. And so what they tried to do is they tried to make Jesus a dissident of Rome. In other words, they're going to show him that Jesus was rebelling against Rome. And so therefore, they could have the Romans get rid of Jesus, and they didn't have to do it. So they came to Jesus, and basically they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is law. And then they asked this question, Is it lawful? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Listen to what Jesus says. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring a denarius, one day's wage, bring a denarius and look at me. And look at it, I mean. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription are on that coin. And he said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Hmm. So Jesus takes a coin. He says, whose image is on that coin? It's Caesar's. Then give it to Caesar. Ravi Zacharias says that if they would have really been listening to what Jesus said, because he said, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God, what belongs to God? What bears his image? You see, our value to God is not because of the external things that we value. It's because when God created us, he created in his, in his image and in his likeness. Go back to Genesis 1. Can I tell you something? God does not value you because of what you can do, because of who you think you are or who anybody else says you are. Here's the reason God values you, because when God created you, with all of our flaws and all of our brokenness, with all of that truth, God still sent his son to redeem us. You see, I'm not valuable because I'm good. Because I'm not. My value, if I have any, is based on one thing. And one thing alone, and that is somehow in my heart, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, God looked for me, he listened to me, he lifted me, and he is recreating in me the image of the Son of God. I'm not a Son of God. But he's recreating in me that. And here's what I want you to hear this morning. 
God values you because he made you. Closing story. And I've told this before. I'm getting old. I have too many return illustrations. Little boy built a boat. He was so proud of his boat. It was a sailboat. He worked on that boat for weeks. And it came time to launch the boat. So he took the boat down to the lake, set it out on the lake, and the boat just began to sail perfectly. And he's just admiring his boat sailing. And before he realized, the boat had gotten out of sight. And he tried his best. He swam as fast as he could, and the boat just kept going, got out of sight. He was just devastated. He had made the boat. He lost the boat. He went home. He was just heartbroken. A few days later, he's walking down the street, and he looks in the toy story, and there in the window was his boat. So he went into the guy, and he said to the guy, Sir, that's my boat in the window. So it's not your boat anymore. It's my boat. Somebody brought it in. And I purchased it from them. I paid a price for the boat. And if you want the boat, you got to pay the price. So the little boy goes home and he gathers up every penny he has. He finds every odd job he can. And a few days later, he walks into the store and says to the guy, here's the money. I want the boat. Paid for the boat. They gave it to him. And the owner heard the little boy as he exited the toy store, say, boat, you are my boat. You are twice my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you. Secondly, you're my boat because I paid for you. Can I tell you something? God made you. But more importantly, he paid for you. And he bought you out of the slave market of sin. And when you realize that, you find your heart at home. And you don't have to perform. You don't have to earn. Because by grace, we're saved through faith. That not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. So no one be able to boast before God. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that the Father prepared in advance for us to do. If Jesus is in your heart, you're home. You're home. You're accepted. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. You're valued because you're twice his. You're his because he made you. And you're his because he paid for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that like the father in the last story that we looked at last week, all we need to do is simply recognize where we are make our way home and I'm so grateful that when the father sees us returning and the good news is the father sees us the moment we turn that he runs to meet us and he welcomes us home father I pray that people in this church know that they're at home with you
And out of that, I pray they would realize that they can be at home here. Father, if there's anyone here today who's never accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray they would realize that God's been looking for them. They're not here by accident today. They may have had another reason for being here, but the reason they're here is because you've been looking for them. And God, if they cry out to you, you'll hear their cries and you'll lift us. And you'll throw a party. The heavens will rejoice. The angels of heaven rejoice over one lost sinner. and comes home. Father, thank you for all that you've done for us. And God, we commit these last few moments of this service to you. And I pray your Holy Spirit would have the freedom to convict hearts, not to condemn, but to value. Father, thank you that we commit this day to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're here today, and maybe you need to accept Jesus today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You simply repent. There's people who'd love to talk with you. You can come and talk with me, talk to Dave, talk to Doug, talk to Nathan over here, shoot, talk to Drew. These guys know what it is. And uh, man, if you are here today and you've never accepted Jesus, just know that he loves you and you're deeply loved and valued.